0: My whole story has to do with being inspired by family, motivated by family, because of my grandmother to start with. And when I was little, I just looked up to her so much. She was this amazing mogul herself who ran businesses across Asia, was one of the first women to drive a car in Vietnam, and was just so amazing. I wanted to be just like her growing up.
1: That's Tiffany Pham, founder and CEO of Mogul one of the largest and fastest growing platforms for women and diverse professionals.
0: When I was 14 years old, that's when my entire life changed. That was the year that my biggest role model in life, my grandmother, ended up passing away young unexpectedly. And the day that she passed away, I made a promise to her that I was going to do everything I could to follow in her footsteps. And I was going to dedicate my life, too, towards providing others in need with opportunities, just as she had always lifting others up, especially underrepresented voices, um, I wanted to be just like her, no matter how hard or challenging. So ever since then, since I was 14, that's all I've worked toward.
1: This is Finding Humanity, and I'm your host, Hazami Bermuda. Through true stories of courage and purpose, we put a human face on the biggest challenges of our time. This season, we will focus on how women's excellence shapes history. In each episode, we bring you powerful voices of women sharing challenges that they had to overcome across different fields and cultures, and their journey to achieving greatness. Originally from Vietnam, Tiffany's family moved to France. I actually ended up first growing up in Paris, France, but
0: because my parents worried about me as minority, they worried that I wouldn't have opportunities like those around me. So they started to watch black and white movies from America and fell in love with America. And as a result, we ended up moving from Paris, France to Plano, Texas. And so when I was in high school, um, really struggled, you know, with the English language still because I spoke French and Vietnamese at, at that time. And I was struggling with English, but I learned by watching TV shows like Friends and I Love Lucy and listening to the radio, Delilah and KVIL. And and so as a result, could see for myself how powerful the world around us, storytelling could be for learning and education. And I never forgot that feeling and experience. In my family, entrepreneurship was not some glamorous thing, it was just a way of being. Um, everyone kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit within my family, such as my grandmother running businesses, my mother as well, my father, having just a a love of entrepreneurship in general and and kind of pushing us to learn, pushing us to start our businesses. It was actually my father that kind of became my biggest influence after my grandmother. And that was because my father would always say things that kind of would eventually lead me to this direction of realizing it was the right path for me. He would always talk about failing forward and ever since we were little, It wasn't about being perfect, it was about learning. And so long as you were learning, you were succeeding. And so I never worried about failing because so long as, again, I was like picking up a little gem of learning that like, you know, I went on to the next thing.
1: Besides her family's work ethic, Tiffany was influenced by shows that she watched on TV.
0: I happened to watch a show called Gilmore Girls when I was around 14, 16. And that's when I happened to see their main character, Roy Gilmore, go off to Yale, run the school newspaper there, just like my grandmother had run back in Asia. And so all of a sudden, I got this idea of maybe heading there, which was such a far fetched idea for me because I didn't even travel out of Texas by this time period. Like I didn't have the money to go to college, visit colleges. So I wrote a letter to Yale asking for a chance if they could just let me in. I could do this one day, create this company one day, follow my grandmother's footsteps. And so they, after a couple of months of silence, ended up writing me back and they decided to give me a scholarship to attend Yale. And so the first time I really, really saw what a college looked like, and experienced college, was my very first day of class. And so I ended up writing that school newspaper just like Rory, just like my grandmother. And I really saw that I could be like my grandmother if I really tried. I really could be like her.
1: This early venture proved that Tiffany had a knack for business. Within six months, she brought Yale's newspaper out of bankruptcy and on to a record profitability. After her undergrad, Tiffany was awarded a scholarship to attend Harvard Business School. She became one of the youngest students in her program. She then moved to New York, where she worked three simultaneous jobs. I became one of the youngest
0: executives at cbs overseeing tv stations radio stations websites mobile properties strategy business development and ultimately helping talent surface to the forefront across 29 different u.s cities and then at nights i would take on side jobs again with always kind of this idea of pushing talent to the forefront and helping talent right providing them opportunities like i would promised my grandmother early on this common thread You'll see throughout my jobs around this time and so what happened was the second job i took on was creating this venture together between beijing government u.s government u.s talent and investing beijing government resources into u.s talent again so as to lift them up at the forefront i became the global head of marketing for that venture and then the third job i had at night was producing feature films and documentaries around social issues that needed more global awareness So I became the producer behind the first North American feature film to feature a man with Down syndrome in the lead role. And I was always finding ways to highlight new talent.
1: Despite all of her achievements, Tiffany had a hard time believing in herself.
0: Then ended up uh, kind of suffering from imposter syndrome as I was such a, again, in the minority. Um, It was, was always kind of a theme of my life. I always seemed to never quite belong wherever I was. And so anyways, ended up trying to Overcome that, develop the courage, kind of develop the muscle to speak up regularly, no matter even whether it didn't seem like I deserved to see at the table because I looked different than everybody else, was younger than everybody
1: else, etc. The underrepresentation of women in leadership positions contributed to Tiffany's imposter syndrome. According to a 2021 research by McKinsey and LeanIn.org, only 24% of women in the United States occupy C-suite or executive level manager roles. This represents a 7% increase from 2016. But this progress has not translated into gains for women of color, who only account for 4% of C-suite leaders. To make significant progress in workplace equity, women, and women of color in particular, must be promoted beyond entry and mid-level positions. Due to Tiffany's success, Forbes included her in their 30 Under 30 list. The annual list is an acknowledgement of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs under the age of 30.
0: And at this time, it was a very small thing. It wasn't this big ordeal that has become today, but um, at the time it was just a small thing and they ended up writing about my three jobs. And they must have run out of celebrities because they put me in one of the final slots and they put my email address on there, too. And this is a very early on. And, uh, And as a result, I got a flood of emails from all around the world asking for help and advice. And how could they get the same three jobs, too? I got so many letters from young women, especially asking me for help and advice from all across the world, all across the U.S., And word must have spread that if you write this woman in America, she'll write you back a three-page essay because I started getting an even bigger flood and it was just building upon itself. And that's when I really came up with the idea for Mogul. What if all of us could come together as we are doing now and share information with each other, advice, connection... And then, of course, share opportunities and resources and learning, you know, access to opportunities that would accelerate us in the end, enabling us to reach our
1: greatest potential. Mogul supports 430 million diverse candidates by connecting them to companies looking for talent. Since its founding in 2014, Mogul has become one of the world's leading diversity recruitment companies.
0: And... One of the reasons why it took off very much initially was actually for a very serendipitous reason. I, back in school, had heard different speakers and um, different founders come to the school to share their philosophies and lessons learned. And one in particular wasn't like necessarily seen by the public as one of the most successful entrepreneurs of all time, et cetera, but he's one of the entrepreneurs that most impacted me and influenced me and one of the lessons he shared was that to launch a product successfully, to continue learning from it, et cetera, you have to become a super user. So I would repeat that to myself all the time, like to become the biggest super user of my platform as possible, I needed to like get on there and be a part of the community and really kind of harness the power of the community myself in order to continue to learn and make it the best platform and community possible. And so I ended up then as a result joining the community posting as well and one of the things I posted was something really close to my heart at the time Um, it was basically what was going on in my life which was that as a career minded woman at the time and even now you know I ended up having to make a lot of sacrifices throughout my personal life in order to work on mogul work on these various jobs that would enable me to learn fulfill this promise and you know at the time in my personal life I would then Have various partners throughout who would start out very, very supportive, even for one or two or three years, but over that course of time, ultimately showcase that they had different values, such as by, for example, deciding that they didn't want to pursue their own passions. And then over time, growing resentful that I was following mine. That was actually what happened with the relationship that I was in when Mogul launched. And so when Mogul launched and that relationship fell apart because he really wanted us to get married and move in together, but um, ultimately was making me decide between Mogul versus marrying him, moving in, then ultimately I had to choose Mogul. And I was still though nonetheless heartbroken. And so I ended up writing about my heartbreak on the platform and talking about how, you know, if anyone gets married. Like, do not get married all caps unless you ask your partner these 15 questions. And, you know, and these are struggles that a lot of us women like face and, you know, have to think about and discuss. And so I posted it and it just went viral.
1: Tiffany's post garnered 13 million views in just a few weeks. Many women in business identified with the struggle to meet societal expectations. I spoke to Sarah Chen, co founder and managing partner at Beyond the Billion, about this issue. Beyond the Billion is a consortium of investors focusing on backing female founders. Sarah shared how her early career experiences influenced her passion for supporting women.
2: I was uh, part of a spin off unit of a corporate venture capital, uh, managing about 100 to 150 million, investing into late stage biotech companies. I didn't realize until much later that, hey, you know, I was the only one that looked like me, that spoke like me, that thought like me. And I realized, you know, we were working late, you know, from 5pm to 8pm, we would have meetings, sometimes we would have, you know, things that we would have to do. And I realized, uh, for many of the women, you know, there were women in the sort of ancillary team. So I was the only woman in the deals team, but they would Check out at 5 p.m. Because of course, especially in a country like Malaysia, uh, the expectation on domestic responsibility still today falls upon the women. So while the married men that were in my team would stay on and have those meetings with me, because I was, you know, a, a single career woman at that time, having those meetings at 7 p.m., 6 p.m., whatever that was required to get the deal done, many of the women had to leave. And I realized over time um, that, you know, they were not getting the keys to the corner office.
1: Sarah also experienced the challenges of being a woman in a male-dominated field. I was
2: ambitious, you know, gluts blazing and, and ready to get deals and deals done. Uh, and one of my strongest supporters, and this is what makes it harder, actually said to me once, you know, Sarah, you need to relax you might be coming off a little bit too strong in this negotiation with a Japanese counterpart at the time. And this was in front of an intern, a female intern that was a lot younger than me. And I was essentially told in a nice way uh, that perhaps I should step back from leading a deal, right? And at that moment, I realized, hmm, okay, if I was a man, would I be told this exact same thing? And the answer is probably no, because, you know, as you know, and things are changing now, thankfully, in Japan. But in the Japanese culture, to have a strong woman is also uh something that is only in recent years, you know, being recognized as, as the norm. Right. And obviously, the Japanese counterpart was feeling a little bit un- uncomfortable by me leading a deal and coming on a little bit strong. But that, of course, is my job to get the best deal and negotiate for the best deal. And I pride myself on the quality of my work there. The end of the story was, of course, I held my ground. Uh, I understood that there are different strokes for different folk and I had to manage my ways, but that didn't mean that I should back off from the deal. I should continue to lead, but perhaps address it in ways that would be acceptable in certain. Cultures. And, you know, again, that is controversial in certain ways. You know, do you change the women or do you change the system? And I'm definitely in the camp of changing the system, but also believe that you have to be in the system to actually change that.
1: This realization led Sarah to launch Lean In Malaysia, a platform to educate and enable women into leadership. But Sarah soon realized that having women in leadership positions wasn't enough they also needed the capital to grow their businesses. When
2: I met my co-founder, Shelly Porges, in Washington, D.C., which is where I moved and where I'm based now, both of us were just, you know, talking about how there was really a lot of female founders doing great things, bringing great innovation into this world. That have the potential to really shape the future and really, you know, have a transformative effect on our lives, and yet we're not getting funded. You know, not getting the funding that they deserve, despite meeting every requirement from IP patented technology, market traction, so on and so forth. You know, both of us were at a time in a, of our careers where we were judging female founder competitions, uh, startup competitions. And sure, they'll get the prize monies, so you know, 100000 250000 But after a couple of years, you know, we just didn't see them scale at a level that we thought they could.
1: Back then in 2018, only 2.2% of all venture capital in the United States was going to teams with all-female founders, and only 12% to teams with at least one woman. To change this, Sarah and her co-founder launched the Billion Dollar Fund for Women.
2: What we wanted to do with the Billion Dollar Fund for Women was to change things now to work with existing and new managers that were, you know, already in the venture capital ecosystem to say, can you commit a dollar amount to be invested into female founders? And that total aggregate amount was uh, a billion dollars as a target. And, And we met that goal in under nine months. You know, over 630 million of that has been deployed in under two years.
1: After reaching their billion dollar goal. Sarah and her co-founder launched Beyond the Billion, a global consortium of investors that have pledged to invest beyond $1 billion towards women-founded companies. What are some of the challenges you think women encounter in accessing initial capital and or growing their businesses?
2: Yeah, so a number of things. And I think the first thing is network. So from a founder standpoint, right, when you're starting a business, I mean, let's start from the ground level here. Uh You've got an idea, you know, you need a 100,000, say, to get it off the, you know, idea sheet into real execution. Where do you get this money? For a lot of women, that doesn't look like calling up uh, a friend from Harvard necessarily to say, hey, can you give me, you know, $20,000 and five people give me $20,000 and I'm off the races. For a lot of men, uh, they are more networked. And of course, you know, let's not even begin to talk about the problem of, you know, people of color because I think the statistic is for 80% of Black women, they do not have 10 people in their phone or in their contact book that they can call up to raise the funding that they need. And and what does that mean, right? That means that uh, they probably need to take out a loan to get started. They probably need a bootstrap. And that means that you're starting from a smaller base, right? You're not aiming to burn cash like many technology companies for a whole year or two years, three years to get to scale. But you're thinking about, you know, how can I get to a point of revenue uh, from day one to make it profitable? And that impacts the choices that a lot of the founders make.
1: Mogul's success story illustrates Sarah's point. One of the reasons why Tiffany was able to secure capital to grow Mogul was because of the connections that she had acquired throughout her career. Connections that most female founders don't have.
0: I was lucky because I'd spent the years prior to Mogul working in all these collaborations that I mentioned before, all these jobs and joint ventures and side hustles i actually did a number of those side jobs for free just because i loved learning and i wanted to follow my grandmother's footsteps and so i wanted to adopt all these skill sets for free then as a result i had a lot of friendships throughout my life that arose out of me giving and giving and giving and never expecting anything back so when i launched Moogle, all of a sudden there was this entire population of people that came rushing and saying like how can i help and so all of a sudden, you know, one of those individuals was someone named Alex that I had helped earlier on. And so all of a sudden, as I launched Mogul, he said, for all that you did for me, let me do something for you. I'm going to introduce you to like 30 people. And I didn't really know what that meant. But I was so, so pleasantly surprised when all of a sudden I looked in my inbox. And like within a few hours of him saying that, there were like 30 notes back to back to back of, you know, him saying you should meet her. She's amazing. Like... Listen to her platform, like what it's offering. And he had sent it to like really amazing people. And so, yeah, that's, you know, kind of the early journey of fundraising that I took. Therefore, was kind of
1: like this network based approach. Thanks to the support that Tiffany received, Mogul has become one of the largest and fastest growing platforms for women and diverse professionals.
0: We support 430 million different diverse candidates, women, minorities, people of color, veterans, people with disabilities, and ultimately then provide B2B talent solutions to 510 Fortune 1000 clients, world's fastest growing startups, ipo and companies, and enable them to be able to use our softwares or our services to gain access to these diverse candidates.
1: Why do you think companies struggle to hire diverse workforces?
0: There's a number of reasons why a company might struggle to build a diverse workforce. For example, On the sourcing front, one of the most common platforms out there, which shall not be named publicly, but that said, I'm sure you can guess, ultimately actually provides limited search results. Whenever you search for someone on the platform, you only see a small segment and of the segment that is shown 80% approximately, maybe skewing older Caucasian male and 20% approximately will be gender diverse or ethnically diverse meaning that the recruiters technology is causing them to become unconsciously biased unintentionally for themselves luckily mogul our platform it actually does show comprehensive search results so it actually does enable a company to comprehensively see everyone out there no cutting off no unnatural constraint or cap and so a company can see everyone comprehensively and, and source uh, and diversify its workforce from the top of the funnel on the traction standpoint you also have to have effort in communicating your intention to attract more diverse candidates. And ultimately, what may happen is that if a company's not working to elevate its employer brand and communicate its intention, it may just continue to attract non-diverse candidates because diverse candidates are looking for that workplace that is looking for diverse candidates after all.
1: Another reason why women and minorities continue to be pushed to the sidelines is due to the bias in the hiring process. The results of current studies have really brought to light the severity of this issue. For example, a study found that applicants with male names have a 40% higher chance to be called in for an interview than their female counterparts. Another study found that applicants with traditionally black-sounding names were called back 10% fewer times, despite having comparable applications to their white counterparts. Similarly, such bias can occur in the interview process. The interview process, if
0: it's not consistent, for example, that may lead to unconscious biases whereby candidates are evaluated different ways. And as a result, um, those that perhaps are that are not diverse are making it through. And those that are diverse are leaking out of the process at that time because of a different style of evaluation across different interviewers a comprehensive system for evaluation that's consistent across interviewers. It's going to lead to less conscious biases. And having the interviews also trained on unconscious bias will also enable them to understand the things they may be doing that lead to a better response from a candidate versus worse response. For example, you know, in an interview, if I lean forward with you and if I am am engaging with you and making eye contact because I relate to you, then you're going to feel comfortable. You're going to give me great answers. And as a result, it's going to lead to a a positive interview. But if my unconscious biases are at play, whereby because we look different, because I'm less comfortable, then as a result, I may lean back. I may look away. And as a result, as the interviewee, you may lean back and look away. As a result, you're giving me worse responses, worse answers. It's going to be a worse interview. So again, there's things that the interviewer may be doing as well that leads to a leakage of diverse candidates at the interview stage. And then so forth and so on across every step. The negotiation phase, the integration phase, there's things that need to be done across each aspect that needs, again, otherwise to negative results and impact.
1: As Tiffany notes, training employees on unconscious bias, as well as improving search algorithms, contribute to a more equal workforce. Another important step is to direct more capital towards women founders through efforts like Beyond the Billion.
2: I like to think that we're making steps forward every day.
1: That's Sarah again.
2: I think there's a wide reckoning that, you know, there is certainly uh, inequity in the space and that something needs to be done about it. And I think with what we're experiencing right now, the fact that you and I can connect over Zoom, uh, that's changing things, actually. Uh, a lot of founders that would have typically been overlooked because they were not from the right networks are now able to tap into networks that, you know, back in the day, you would have needed a referral to some VC or some, you know, check writer that's in New York and Silicon Valley that may not be as willing and as open as he or she is these days to actually, you know, speak to someone and and suss out an idea that's from a non-traditional quote-unquote background and, and sort of dual flow source. You know, I think that things are changing and with a lot of new funds as well that are particularly focused, especially with the the tipping point, the unfortunate event of George Floyd. But a lot of organizations are realizing that we have to do something. We can't just be doing the same old, same old to get a different result. And the focus on uh, Black founders, the focus on women, the focus on minorities as founders that have grit and hustle and great ideas that are being developed to get to the next stage, that matters.
1: Founders like Tiffany. Through Mogul, she has not only supported thousands of women in their careers, but Tiffany has also built confidence in herself. In each of us, we face imposter syndrome, yes. And
0: to combat it, how I combat it on a micro level, on an individual level, is simply to think to myself, I just never want to regret a single moment of my life. I've done it before, where I didn't speak up, where I didn't step forward, and and then I ended up regretting that moment. And I hate regretting. And I did it so much throughout my teen years and my 20s and now in my 30s, like it's no longer possible for me to regret. I have to speak up, I have to step forward, I have to raise my hand. I can't regret, never again even if I'm fearful, even if I really don't want to speak up because I'm surrounded by really intimidating people. I'm um, again, that feeling, that desire to never regret drives me to go ahead and say something. And the more times you do that, the more that practice becomes then a skill and that skill becomes confidence and that confidence becomes true courage. And so you just have to force yourself so that you just keep practicing, keep practicing until it becomes again, a skill that becomes courage. And so that's what happened with me.
1: This courage has enabled Tiffany to fulfill the promise that she made to herself after her grandmother passed away.
0: I'm very inspired to share my story because ultimately I remember being a young girl in Texas and not really knowing who to turn to as an example, other than my own family at the time and TV shows, right, as I shared before. But I hope that my story helps Many young girls, therefore, in Texas or anywhere else they may be living finally have an example to turn to, you know, if someone that's done what they're hoping to do in entrepreneurship or wherever it may be. And so as a result, um, feels that much more motivated to do it because it's possible and they see that they can do even better than me. I hope they will. And so therefore, I, I just share my story because of that hope.
1: Investing into women business leaders and women-led companies is not only the right thing to do, but it is good for business. On our podcast, we aim to educate and inspire you to take action. There are many ways to do that. Here are just a few suggestions. First, ask questions when you see few women in leadership, in decision-making roles, or as recipients of investments. Second, on a more personal note, if you are a parent, avoid unintentionally instilling limiting beliefs on your daughters and teach your sons to uphold women and girls. Third, do your part to invest into women-founded and women-led businesses. Buy their products and help promote their business. If you are an investor, consider financially backing them. If you'd like to hear more empowering stories from Finding Humanity, or to learn more about this episode, visit our website at findinghumanitypodcast.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Finding Humanity reach new audiences. So we thank you for your support. In our podcast, we cover pressing and at times controversial social and political issues. The views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. Finding Humanity is a joint production of the Humanity Lab Foundation and Human Group Media. Our co-executive producers are Camille Lorente and Hazami Bermada. Associate producers are Fernanda Oliegas and Tani Jurapaprasuk. Policy and background research by Carolina Mindika and Tani Jirapaprasuk. Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. For this episode, I'd like to thank Tiffany Pham and Sarah Chen. I'm your host, Hazami Bermada. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again on the next episode.